0: Welcome to Onscript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archeology, span geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Just a quick note that you can sign up to our newsletter at onscript.study and there's a spot you can do that there. If you'd like to receive news from us, Uh, about what's happening and what's coming up uh, with the podcast. We've got a, uh, a number of good episodes lined up. And thank you so much to all of you who listen and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or share it around family meals when you're gathered together at the holidays or among friends. Whatever you do to share the word about this, we really appreciate that and hope you enjoy this
0: episode. Welcome back on Script Biblical World listeners. I am Kyle Keimer, one of your co-hosts. I'm joined today by my other co-host, Chris McKinney. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Kyle. How are you? I couldn't be better. And part of it's because we have an awesome guest today. Uh, today we're actually talking with Professor Dr. Kurt Van Beckham, and he's going to be kind of telling us all about First Kings 4. So this is our kind of main text we're going to be talking about, looking at the interaction between archaeology and text, and uh, Kurt is both professor and department chair of Old Testament at, uh, is it just the University of, of Louvain? Is that, um, or the evangelical, evangelical theological, theological but, uh, yeah. there we go,
2: to get it right. So we have the elephant in Leuven, which is a bit Catholic, and then we have the small evangelical uh, institution but thanks for having me
0: yeah it's our pleasure we've we've had some interaction in the past uh we you gave a paper in a session that we ran at a conference a few years back on historical geography and it was it was awesome so we've been looking forward to getting you on here um to the podcast so thanks for being here i know it's an uh, evening time for you trying to navigate around the world and we appreciate it um chris is there anything you want to say before we jump yeah into I,
1: I was I was just going to say thanks for again thanks for joining us. There's a there's only a small cohort of people that are interested in historical geography in general, uh, of which Kyle and I consider myself, you know, part of that small tribe. Um now there's a bigger group of people interested in the relationship of Bible and archaeology and how those things intersect. So it's it's a it's a great thing to be able to Hopefully, not only grow the interest in this uh, in this field, but to talk to someone who who knows it well. Um, in addition to you know its relationship to uh, history and its relationship to how we understand the Bible, and that's why I think these disciplines—biblical archaeology, historical geography, biblical studies in general—why they're so nicely integrated. And I'm excited to, t- to see what you have to say about First Kings 4 and what comments we can make on the side to better understand this very interesting text, but a text that uh, most people, when they read it, they're like, why is this in the Bible? It doesn't tell me about how... Uh-
0: precisely." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So Kurt, maybe maybe uh, kick us. Out. Well, I'll, I'll just introduce the text. So First Kings four uh, is basically an, a list of administrative officials. Is generally how it's understood um, for Solomon, and it's kind of put in amongst his rise to power. And many times, a lot of scholarship has been done on this passage from looking at it archaeologically, historically, um, historiographically to see you know is this an accurate. Uh, description of something from the 10th century? Is it something later? Is it a list? Is it a different kind of literature? Many different kinds of questions come up with this, but uh, Kurt, I think you do a really great job of bridging the gap between those historical discussions and literary discussions and the archeological discussions. So maybe I'll just turn it over to you to, uh, to have you just give us any more introduction to the passage as, as you see it necessary.
2: Yes, thank you very much, uh, Kyle. I did my dissertation on uh, Joshua um, a few chapters and in the whole evaluation of the historical geography of those uh, chapters and all the discussions about dating, uh, of course you end up with these lists because the lists you have the geography but you can combine it with archaeology and in the end you have a kind of list of realia names archaeology which with which you can try to break through this kind of circular reasoning of literary criticism. So you do you have a kind of a real material to go into that? And from Joshua, yeah, of course then then in these discussions, uh, you you soon bump into um, the period of the kings. And one of the most, yeah, probably earliest uh, administrative lists in the Bible, um, uh, that uh, might reflect use of of a kind of yeah administrative text is in One Kings uh, four. So what is you read the Bible, then you come from David to Solomon. There's this beautiful story about uh, this guy uh, being a king, being a very rich and in particular a wise king, and with that comes the wealth and the and the, and the power. Um, and then you have um, in this, this, these beginning chapters showing how great Solomon is, you have this list of a kind of officials, prefects, in Solomon's um, uh, reign. So uh, the first re- f- verse reads, King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials, and then comes a whole list of names, and, and names and it goes on and and it ends up with saying that uh, that all Israel was very happy and and uh everybody yeah had, had a good life and um <clears throat> and it's interesting in this so we of course we have in the, in the story of Solomon this story from very good great with the building of the temple in its center, and then we, it, the story in a way goes down, and it, it comes in, in, into a chapter eleven uh, with the more critical parts, and finally uh, uh, the prophetic um, saying that he he uh, he will lose part of his his, his uh, kingdom, not he but his son, uh, and and then it goes on. But this list uh, is interesting because. Uh, we have, of course, in Joshua, we have the tribes. And here, suddenly, we have some people named, some of them are his son-in-law, um, and others are just new names, and, and other people, um, uh, the first people that are mentioned, part of them are were already in the administration, as mentioned in Samuel, uh, at the... Uh, at at the court of David, so what seems to be is that there is an eye into a king, which is a bit of kind of professionalization there, there come more people to the court, and in place is there a kind of tax system, because there are uh, 12 places mentioned, and each of them has to serve the court with food and drink, uh, one month a year so that's that's uh, more or less a summary of it all and, and then it goes on and it said it says about the, uh, um, the how big his area was which he had under his control and then it ends with, uh, with, with this beautiful verse 20 Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea they ate and drank and were happy
1: yeah this
2: is the good the good well, life
1: yeah, and I think that's actually I, I agree with you that that verse is a verse we would like to read, right? And everybody likes that verse, and it's really interesting to find such a like poetic turn of phrase at the end of this dry, dusty, geographic, you know, laden list, and it shows also uh, an awareness, I think, of 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 whether you know this is later or earlier of of. Preceding narratives, uh, especially when we think of the Book of Genesis, where it talks about the patriarchal uh, promises as being like the sand on the seashore, and so it immediately brings to mind the promises of what happens earlier, and so that's part of the the larger story of what First Kings four is uh, trying to tell. Now, again, you get into all questions of of you know dating of the of the Pentateuch, dating of Kings, and all of that, but. What I just would like to just add to your add to your to your note, just for our, for our listeners, is some some dates here. Um, David would have reigned, at least according to the traditional understanding, something like around ten ten BC to about nine seventy BC, and David and Solomon, his son, would have reigned about nine seventy to nine thirty uh, BC, and so that's the the time frame we're talking about. Uh, he mentioned the the Iron Two A. That's
0: this. This is also the archaeological period uh, that we're that we're framing it under. Yeah, one thing I think is important too to to note with with a passage like this is that I think this is one of those passages, Curtin. You mentioned it. You know, you kind of gloss over maybe when you come. It's like, what is this list doing here? Why do I care about these names and these places? And I think so many times the geographical texts and list that we have in the Bible people gloss over. But there's going to be so much that we can get out of this. Um, these lists are extremely important. And it's also important to remember that you know we have the Bible as, as a written document today. But it's made up of a number of different sources ultimately put together, some of which are administrative lists that someone took and put into a narrative context. And this is what we have here. The question then is, well, why did they do that? Why did they choose this specific list? Um, is it just because they love details and loved administration? Maybe, but perhaps there's something more about it. And this is one of the the fun and interesting things we can do with the text here because there's going to be so many different layers we can peel back when looking at you know such a you know just a, this little portion of the text here. Um. So let's let's move. Kyle, Kyle yeah, I, I,
1: I'd add I'd add one a couple things to that. Um, there's I, at least two or three things that are worth noting. Is this could be the type of text that is included in the the citation of the well, actually the most the, the 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 verse gets repeated the most in the book of kings which is is it not written in the chronicles of the kings of judah or israel this is precisely the type of text that might be directly from a Chronicles of the Kings of Judah or or Israel, and then there's a. If we go back to my point about uh, preceding literature, whether it's earlier or later is, is an open question. But there's a, there's a question also around the number twelve, right? Why the number twelve? Does this list relate to um you know is this is this the beginning of that idea that we have twelve or is it uh, existing into the the framework of the tribal league of something that's already in existence, does the tribal league uh, from, you know, from Reuben to Benjamin, those 12, is that something that happens earlier or later? All those questions are, are things that people have approached this passage uh, with. And um, you know, it, what's the relationship, you might say, between the 12 tribes and these 12 officials? Is there a relationship?
0: Good, good point. Um, let me, let me switch tax. Well, let me just continue building on that. And um, this whole idea, Kurt, and this is, I'm going to direct a, a question at you that, you know, we have the archeological record. We have the biblical texts. Would you say it's pretty easy just to understand them or do we need to interpret each on its own accord? And I, we, we know the answer of what you're going to say. I think it's a really important point though, to, to bring out for the listeners. Can you just tell us a little bit about your, your kind of approach to how do you make these two different different types of material work together and what are the processes by which you, you do that?
2: Yes, I think, uh, thank you for this question because it's very important. Uh, when you read the text and you think about it, at first sight you seem to have a kind of interpretation, but as soon as you uh, compare different biblical translations, then you have some questions. In this case, for instance, uh, there is ancient Near Eastern information, uh, there are some lists from Emar, from Ugarit, in Mesopotamia, lists of court officials. Yes, they look more or less the same. We have other texts uh, saying that um, uh, some areas need to uh, give the court a monthly uh, part of of uh, what has been uh, as a tax to to the court, but a combination of this is unique here in the Bible, but it's very familiar and this raises all kinds of questions. How should we read this? What is the background of it? So there, it's very obvious that there is interpretation uh, at hand uh, with regard to archaeology. Of course, we. Uh, we we have these names in the text of the of these places, but of course first we when we go to the San Levant or the land of Israel or 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 to Jordan, which some of these uh, places are, then we have the question, okay, but what um, what archaeological excavation or site that has been surveyed has to be identified with this? So already from a very superficial. When you you come from uh, to both, uh, is it a text or is it the archaeology? There are lots of questions, and all of them require uh, interpretation. And the more detailed it becomes, um, uh, it do, it doesn't mean that you cannot come to a certain uh, interpretation or to, uh, to a certain historical ground or background, but uh, it it requires interpretation, and the big pitfall for archaeologists is always to think, okay, um, I know what the biblical text says and I just try to connect it with to my very difficult interpretive enterprise called some Levantine archaeology. And uh, the opposite is also the case with uh, biblical uh, biblicists who study the text and know all the difficulties, then go to uh, a library just take an archaeological report from the shelf and think, okay, this is the way I can make a connection, and and I write this down. And and it's more difficult than that, and you have to take a look at the larger picture. And there are also some epistemological questions that come in, if if I may, with regard to the text. Uh, It's very interesting when you are an experienced epigrapher, yes, and you are used to work with tablets, then you read this verse, um, 1 Kings 4 verse 2 and it says these are the names of the officials but the first four names are not actual names but it says son of personal names, son of Hur" in Mount Ephraim, son of Decker in Makkah, son of Chesed" in Aruboat, son of Abinadab in the coast of Dor. An epigrapher immediately thinks okay this might have been an Tablet. We know them from Ugarit or, or, or a, a piece of papyrus, which was later used, but it was d- damaged at the right upper uh, side of it, and these names, uh, yeah, they were damaged. So only son of was written down. Yes, when you're an epigrapher, you think from the material world, so that this sounds like a, a good interpretation. But when you are much more aware. Of the fact that this is might be an administrative list that is integrated into a literary work. Then you might epistemologically start from a different angle, say okay, we have this big literary work from Genesis to 2 Kings, and there might have been used some older material, but during integration things might have a little bit changed. So it might be that the names were still in the source, but for some reason, the uh, scribe uh, in these cases uh, decided not to mention uh, the name of the uh, of these officials, and I I I, uh, I come back to that later. So here you see how the angle that you choose is of influence uh, in the interpretation you in the end have.
0: Yeah. So I think that's a really great point. I was actually going to ask you to to go into this point. I mean, basically what you're saying is not only do we need to interpret the text from our context today, but we also need to recognize that the original authors or composers of the text may have been making interpretations and figuring out what sources they want to use. And we need to be aware of this kind of double level of interpretation and say, okay, how do we think like them, perhaps the the original author or authors, to understand why they're making the choices they're making. For including the text or putting it in a specific location. So it is a, a complex process to really get at the, you know, why the text appears the way it does today.
1: Yeah. And, and, and if I can just summarize what I, what I uh, for, for, for our audience, what I believe you're saying, um, and maybe say it in my own words, um, it sounds like we have a couple of different options with a text like this. Uh, one option, like you said, is we have examples from Ugarit and other places where a tablet is broken, and the first line we read is "Ben her," which you know is, uh, in this case, uh, "Son of her." Uh, so maybe the text originally had a name and the designation of who he actually was um, was all that survived. And so that option, in this case, would be the redactor of the Book of Kings who put first this section of First Kings four into the Book of Kings has a damaged parchment or papyrus list that is missing that real name of the actual figure. And there's, the again, the question of what that actual list, um, when that actual list dates to, which is a separate question. But then there's another option, which is, it could be that he's just simply using Ben as a way of designating particular people. Um, because this wasn't their name. <laughs> like, no one is named son of someone else. Um, that's that's a that's a title. You know, I've been reading uh, the Saxon stories. Um, and it's always Utrid, son of Utrid. Uh, but it never starts with my name is son of Utrid. Uh, no one starts with you know their their family name unless they're a, you know a famous quarterback like we call Brady Brady. Um, but you you start with you start with their actual name. And so your point is 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 a good one. Is we have to actually think. Well, why does it start with uh, with Ben, which you know to uh, a biblical a biblical reader is immediately son? So it's actually son her, you know, son of her, um, and and so it's a it's a very interesting thing to uh, to, to dive into, and immediately takes us into this w- larger world of comparison and interpretation.
2: Yes, and and let me just also add something from the history of interpretation of this text. So. Uh, when when the epigraphers first um, became more familiar with with the material they found, um, then this interpretation that was broken off in a way or damaged at the right upper corner, uh, that interpretation came up um, and it was discussed. And more recently, people uh, uh, discovered that in that uh, there might be a different option uh, that. Uh, Namely, that son of a personal name so reflects the organization of taxes uh, according to uh, uh, to families opposed to individuals. So that in this case, it would not designate a specific individual, but a certain family that had the obligation of collecting the taxes for the court in a certain um, in a certain. Place or in a certain region, and then of course comes the question: Okay, uh, what kind of organization is this? And uh, very soon uh, came the came some ideas up. So Albrecht Alt, for instance, the father of 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 um, of, of the study of the history of the Southern Levant as we in, as we know it in modern times, he said, okay, it might be that the tribal areas were first there, and then the first kings they they added some regions to this, um, uh, to their territories and these territories uh, that were added to the tribal territories, they, they were uh, designated in this way. So this was a first theory, others said no, I, we think that with the administration that came up with the early kingdom, the old tribal division was in a way uh, put away and this was put in place of that and more recent. Uh, theories are, because the Book of Kings is, by some scholars, dated much, much later, they say, okay, this might be a very ancient tradition, but there was just coming some names from the uh, uh, from the tradition, but we don't know to what extent this actually reflects uh, a certain kind of uh, text uh, system. So we have these different interpretations, and, um, and the interesting thing is, uh, if i may mo- may pursue uh and and try to connect it to uh to this larger narrative of um uh, of solomon uh, starting as the big king the very important king the, the, the ideal king but ending up in a in a more dangerous dangerous way um there there is this uh, theory that um that this this uh, chapter, uh, in a way, already um, is, is, is reflecting what is happening later. So we have King Solomon, who is fantastic first, at the end he's bad. But before that, there are some signs beneath the surface of uh, what is going on That says that, uh, showing that Solomon is going in the wrong direction. And of course, how did Solomon end up? How did Rehoboam start? He said, "Okay, um, uh, I will even uh, uh, raise the burden of the taxes uh, with regard to the northern uh, tribes." And this is very interesting because who um, uh, who is paying for the court? Judah is, is omitted from the text. So it seems that all kinds of regions, according to the text, uh, had to pay for Solomon, but Judah didn't have to. And then, of course, the, the, the people complain against Rehoboam. And so it might be that this text is is already speaking about this these sons of in a more uh, derogatory way. So we have this these family members, these uh, people related closely to the court, uh, people who uh, married the daughters of Solomon, so that he was sure that that region would be attached to him. Um, uh, But the people were fed up with it, and therefore they said, this son of! (laughs) (laughs) And and then you can... can, uh, uh,
1: Which Which works in many different (laughs) languages, by the way.
0: (laughs) So
2: So there is one biblical verse in Isaiah seven, which also has a kind of that kind of derogatory um, uh, connotation to it. So this might also. So if you approach it from this literary point of view, uh, this is uh, how how you, Kyle, what you said about that it uh, might have been interpreted by describes the themselves this is also a possibility in interpreting the text
1: yeah i want to keep our clean rating for uh, for apple and spotify and everything but you know, n- none of the lists say benzona which is not a nice term in modern or biblical hebrew uh, i'll just leave it there um but I, I think you bring up a a really fantastic point which actually gets us to back to that big question like why these lists these lists exist because they're maps, like when we open our Bibles today, you know, we have at the back a very neglected section that everyone should use, which is the maps. Um, these maps uh, are are you know good, usually pretty good, and they give you a direction about what is happening in the text. But they didn't, as far as we know, have graphic portrayals of where these places were, and in some sense, they didn't necessarily need them because they were living in that environment. Uh, I knew it, knew it quite well. But that is an important detail, is that these long lists of places are in essence a map. Uh, and the fact that they occur so frequently and occur in specific sections of the Hebrew Bible tells us that those sections are meant to be geographically oriented and references for how we're interpreting, how we're interpreting other parts of, uh, of, of scripture, which fits in exactly with, uh, with Kurt's point that this is an integral part of how the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomistic historian is writing the Book of Kings because he wants you to know what does Solomon's kingdom look like not only on the macro level of, you know, he is king of all the Neo-Hittite kings, they pay him tribute from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, but internally, this is what his kingdom uh, looks like. And he wants to foreshadow how Rehoboam is going to fail, Jeroboam is going to take away the tribes, and it's going to use kind of the shorthand of Jeroboam gets, uh, t- you know, the the other tribes uh, um, besides Benjamin and Judah, but it wants us to come back and say this is actually the the components of of that kingdom. So I think that's a very important point, which again is also telling us that the author of the Book of Kings is always wanting us to think geographically. He's always wanting to t- to have his story have this component, just as. You know, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, Last Kingdom—all these shows—they start with this beautiful map. Um, this is, you know, and it's—it's it's taking you right into the—the the geopolitical history. So does the—the the Hebrew Bible. Um, and then related to that point, um, if I can go on, I don't think it's quite a tangent, but it's—it's it's a related point. Um, is I actually think that I wouldn't call it an administrative list, um, but I think there's a precursor to what we have in 1 Kings 7 through 19 and that precursor to me uh, and this is not published yet not quite but it's 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 coming um, is David's mighty men and what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 23 is a list of about 30 people and and they're the the mighty men of David they have different things associated with them um, how they fight different different figures. But if you look at the mighty men, it's not just you know such and such, son of such and such. They actually give where they're from. And the mighty men list in 2 Samuel uh, 23, and there's a, a, a version of this also in Chronicles, um, if you look, it's very centralized into four areas. We have, of course, Bethlehem uh, having a, the largest number, which makes sense because of David's um, David's uh, overall connection with this region. Then we have Benjamin, which is rather surprising because Saul was a was a Benjaminite. Then we have Hebron, uh, which is to the south, and figures like uh, uh, like Uriah the Hittite, I believe, are are from this area. We can't get into those details, but then also Ephraim, southern Ephraim. There's a number of sites, uh, and this is one of the things that I I think has not really been noticed in Second Samuel 23. Uh, there's a number of sites, actually the second most of those four groups in that list. And so you can kind of talk about these four power bases in the um, early kingdom of David that these, okay, maybe they, they fought battles and such, but they were important figures who support David's kingdom in this uh, marriage, clan-based relationship. I mean, we can. This goes right back to marriages that David makes in the in, in the Central Hills, uh, and he marries um, people from Carmel and Maon and Jezreel, uh, which are all in the south. But he also is in league with this core, and so you can you can almost get a sense of this was his this was his kingdom, the the, the highlands itself. And then, if that's a, a description. And you might say that the inner ring of uh, the kingdom, you can see how Solomon would expand outside of that. Uh, perhaps marrying, as the biblical tradition says, many many wives, but is able to then bring in through his his daughters through marrying them off to these uh, these twelve um, you know these these twelve regions and growing it that way. And 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 so I think that uh, again. When you read this type of, of, of text, whether it's Second Samuel 23 or First Kings 4 or Joshua 15, which has 130 towns in it uh, for the Judahite town list, which is probably the next iteration of this for, for Judah— I I read those types of texts and I'm saying, who's gonna make this up? Like who's going to take the time, unless they're J.R.R. Tolkien, to create an entire um, geographical, you know, kind of fantastical world where it all seems to more or less match a 10th and 9th century timeframe for these different lists. And so what I'm saying is, is there's both depth to this and that you can identify virtually every town in all three of those uh those lists, but they serve a very important function in not only um, you know, perhaps describing taxation and relationships, but 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 how uh the kingdom itself actually would have functioned in terms of its internal parts.
0: Yeah, this is a good point, Chris. And I think, yeah, you know, I'll I'll let Kurt give some some comments. And it's okay if you Tell Chris he's completely wrong. We don't mind. I mean, I, <laughs> cause you know, I am <laughs> no, but, but I guess I would just add and maybe frame it in this way is the, you know, what, how do these lists, how are we to understand these, um, as historiographic sources and what benefit do we have in viewing them as such? Like, if, you know, if we're looking at David's list of mighty men or Solomon's list, I mean, how are these really informing us and are they, Are they giving us a snapshot into um, an accurate representation of these early time periods where we don't really have any external inscriptions? I mean, very few, I should say, from this time period from the 10th century. Um, And you know, how are they giving us any kind of added insight into this into that period?
2: I think it's very interesting to to approach that. If you just would approach that from the idea that we wouldn't have the Bible, yes, then, then then you would say that you have this Egyptian new kingdom influence a few centuries earlier in the Southern Levant. And in the course of the 11th, 10th, 9th century, you have these tribal entities developing into territorial kingdoms. Yes, we, we, you can, we can see that from the inscriptions, we can see that in the archaeology we have these villages and they built up and the villages become less and we have more administrative centers and in the end there is more hierarchy and at the top of this hierarchy is, is a king. And uh, I think if we would just define these local rulers as X and just think about how they would try to expand their uh, influence and their power and their relations. Uh, and in the end, there would be some some um, uh, most powerful ruler who would, in a way, uh, reclaim uh, the, the, the Ramesside territory, uh, uh, this vacuum, and say, okay, this is all mine, in a way. And I think this is, um, if we would define that, uh, we would make up, in the end, a kind of southern Levantine ruler who would uh, use kinship relations, marriages, um, mercenaries, and whatever, finally to build up this. Uh, and not not only do that in a very hierarchical way, but also because the tribal entities are so strong in this area. Trying to be, to make this by making agreements between tribes and clans and so on and so forth. And the very interesting thing is that when we would speculate in this way and we go then then back to to the biblical text, that then then we in a way see uh, this this happening. What you tell about, of course, we never know. And I'm I'm very curious for the article in which you are you would argue for for it, but. Yeah, um, um, your, the chapter in Samuel might be read in this way. And with regard to your question, uh, Kyle, uh, to what extent can this be used as a historical source? I think personally that to make 1 Kings 4 a kind of district list of Solomon and making all kind of provinces um, is a mistake. Historically, it, it is a mistake because we only have people at a certain city or region we have don't have any definition about how the the territory exactly is and um, uh, so this is in a way and and when we when we take an archaeological look uh, at it we we see a kind of provincial towns in many cases coming up in in the late iron two iron one and late or early uh, early iron two but they are not representative for the later developments. So creating a kind of district list suggests a kind of whole system of administration which is very developed, and I think it wasn't that developed. We see just a son Levantine king trying to have all kinds of connections, making maybe doing this very, very, um, very good, and and indeed creating this unity. Um, which, which later results also in a split up of the, of the kingdom. But um, uh, I think it's very hard with help of these lists to define precise political control. In addition to that, I, I think it's also, uh, when we take a look at this uh, list of officials, you see in many uh, uh, books that a kind of district list is made out of it. so Which suggests a kind of um, a very developed administrative system, and I think it, it simply didn't work that way. You have this some Levitin king uh, making up a, a, a tax system, but it's a snapshot. If we take an archaeological look at these sites, uh, we can also see that, that they are not really representative of uh, this I2A. Uh, of course, they are developing in the direction of administrative towns, but in later times, other towns, Uh, have become more important so the whole suggestion about uh, a kind of very developed administrative um, system with all these towns and regions being very israelite i think this is a this is not what the uh, text actually claims on the one hand and on the other hand this uh, in the following step uh, causes a mismatch with all kinds of archaeology, because the excavators of these sites are trying to discover real uh, Israelite layers, which is not always the case. Uh, we could go more into detail with that, with regard to uh, Tel Dor, because I think that's one of the, um, which one of the, the the examples. But if we take a step back, just suppose you're a Phoenician ruler in Dor. And that, then there in the highlands, there is this very influential ruler uh, and both you can profit from, from the recovering economy, economy with the, uh, from the new South Arabian trade. It's just a win-win when you make a deal and you pay one month a year uh, uh, some taxes and that ruler says, oh, Dor is mine and he, he marries his daughter and to someone important. And and, um, and the rule of Dor can, in his Phoenician way, still go all the way. So I, I think it's th- this complicated picture um, and needs to be seen behind these kinds of lists.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Kurt. And before we jump into the archaeology, I just want to add one thing, because I think there is such a bias in our interpretation of the text that we come with a lot of baggage from you know hundreds of years of history of how we're viewing these things and interpreting things and of course there's there's you know firm boundaries there's districts there's good administration it also partially ties to the idea that oh we're interpreting Solomon's period as this golden era epic which you know the biblical text kind of alludes to but really David is the one they they give more more precedence to than Solomon these are kind of later interpolations that we've put onto the text. And so we need to peel those back and say, well, how did they actually operate back then? You know, yeah, what, what is the, the social political relationship? What does it look like when uh, there's a king, you know, and what what is that power relationship with subservient you know, individuals look like? I mean, we're thinking again, more like the godfather than say some strong bureaucracy where you know, everything is structured. You go make a deal with somebody, and if it's mutually beneficial, great. And whoever kind of is the, the leader of making that deal, maybe they can claim you know the greater position in the relationship. And we know that this is, is taking place historiographically across the ancient Near East in, in inscriptions, particularly royal inscriptions. So it's not, it's not a problem and it's not different in the biblical text if we're seeing this kind of same thing taking place. It's just that we need to adjust our expectations of how we're reading the text but then also what we're going to expect to find in the archaeology. So I'll stop there for a second because Chris it looked like you want to say something also.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe I, first first add, yeah. I I think when you read further at the beginning of of uh, 1 Kings 5 Chris Hayes from Fuller but also what you said uh uh Chris uh before in this in this episode uh is that this this whole claim of some Egyptian territory and also uh, uh, these, these connections to the Neo-Hittite states, this, this fully uh, fits uh, th- this picture. So you can be, uh, the, the, the territory of actual uh, control might be quite small, but by all kinds of agreements, and because you have the best agreements, you can in the end, uh, with regard to your claims, become very big.
1: Right. I think that's absolutely right. And I I really like uh Kyle's point
0: about The Godfather. Um because I'm we should remember can't refuse. I mean, I know. We, You're welcome for that impersonation. It was pretty good.
1: <laughs> you, you you should remember that literally two chapters before this, Solomon has his own like Michael Corleone baptism scene, where he is literally whacking all of these guys. David gives him a hit list that he, these people have to die for you to succeed. And which, again, if you've not seen that, that, um, that part of The of Godfather 2, it's, it's, it's well, worth, well worth your time. And it really is like second, uh, First Kings chapter 2. Um, but to your points, the control of the Southern Levant is always a tenuous thing. Um, it's always like you, there's a reason why Jerusalem has been besieged 52 times. According to Eric Klein's Jerusalem besieged and destroyed 44 of those, um, because it's always something that is uh, hard to control and maintain. Um, it's, it's, it's not a place you want to be on a risk board if you're trying to be there for a long period of time. And the Bible tells us they're not there for a long time, um, with, with at least this lot, a, a large territorial control. And so, one of the things I I, I want to kind of bring out um, from what C- Kurt's been arguing is that, about this power vacuum um, that was left over um, in the 12th century. Uh, BC. And I want to compare even the Israelites to the Philistines, because the Philistines, as far as we can tell, they took over very important places. I like to call, uh, you know, there's the who's who. I like to call the where's where uh, of of the land of Canaan. And there's about 30, 40 of these places. And the Philistines take five of those, you know, the Philistine uh, cities. The Israelites, as far as we can tell, when they settle in the highlands, they don't take any of them. Um, They live primarily in uh, nomadic, semi-nomadic, as well as these these original places that we see in Ephraim and Manasseh. But we do know, so if that's the beginning of this whole process in the late 13th, early 12th century, um, we do know that they eventually claim all of the other wares, wares. They're eventually, uh, before the Assyrians drive out the, um, the Northern Kingdom and the, eventually the Babylonians conquer the Southern Kingdom, they're going to control every significant town, every significant city, some of which are in this list, a Beit a Megiddo, and so on, they're going to control those. And so um, when's that actually going to happen? Because the biblical text itself indicates that it hasn't happened by the time of David and Solomon. Uh, Okay, maybe Hebron's now a Judahite town. Uh, Jerusalem is not a a, a Judahite or Israelite town. Uh, We're even given indication... Um, that there's these northern areas like Abit-shan, which is mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And so ultimately what we're, we're we're trying to get at is, when do these places actually become Israelite? And what does that actually mean to become an Israelite entity? Does that mean that every person living in is an Israelite? Does that mean that it's paying its taxes all the time to the Israelite kingdom? Uh, or is it a slow change through political affiliation being broken and remade over over time and an ethnic change over time um, to where you actually become associated with Israel. And really, if you, if you want to boil down the high chronology versus low chronology debate, they, we all agree that by the ninth century, um, this transition has happened. Um, but the question is, has it happened this early? Has it happened in the 10th century? And to me, it only makes sense that it does because this is um you need this lengthy period of time um and 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 it makes sense also politically that someone like a Solomon or a David could step into a political vacuum when everyone is weak and be able to carve out for themselves and make some noise just like Hazael does in the ninth century. So anyway, that's that's my uh, Yeah, we
2: should also realize that the texts that we are reading uh are theological texts. Sure. So uh, to make this specific point, I think, in a way, theologically, this interpretation by George Ernest Wright early one, so that there is a kind of shift from the tribal to uh, a kind of district system. I think, as we discussed historically, uh, it, this is not as straightforward as he as he implied. But, but textually, this is an interesting thought because. Uh, uh, 1 Kings 4, it ends up with a very happy Israel, but the text as it is right now raises a theological question, and that is, okay, King Solomon was great, but didn't he, in the end, bring us back to Egypt by making us slaves again and paying taxes, and bringing us out of the tribal areas into, these, in, into this tax system? So this is the theological point that is that is that it is being made um in this text
0: yeah that's great i think you know and i'm just going to add one more layer on top of that too and that's the then it's the archaeology of well, what what is this entire process so we can have you know the theological meaning we have kind of the socio political processes that we also can be discussing but then what does it actually look like in the archaeology i mean how what should we be looking for when we say this site is israelite or it's not israelite or it's half israelite do we find a specific kind of pottery do we find an inscription that says you know shlomo was here versus i don't know goliath was here I mean, wh- what are we looking for and kurt you're, you had mentioned a little earlier the site of of door with this kind of some this this discussion maybe you could go into a bit more detail here and, and guide us through um your thoughts on on um, how they interpret the archaeology and where where we might need to step back, or maybe look at it from just a different perspective, based on how we're looking at the text, whether again be it from a theological or kind of historic, um, you know, his, historical perspective.
2: Tel Dor, of course, is a very interesting um, excavation. It was excavated by Ephraim Stern in the past, and since two thousand three, we have this magnificent excavation there with this very detailed. Uh, reports by uh, Ilan Sharon and uh, Ayelet Gilboa and, um, and, and, and this is really amazing. They, they show uh, how this site developed from the early periods into the Iron Ages and, and we can see the development of the harbour and, and its cultural influences and how a Phoenician city in the end uh, develops uh, in uh, late in Iron II Uh, into an Israelite city but then uh, they have together they wrote a beautiful summarizing article in 2015 in Levant um, which it really beautifully summarizes all the results doing also a bit of the low chronology discussion into it but their main point there was okay but we actually see this heavy Israelite cultural influence uh, from the north. Uh, we, we only see that uh, late in, in Iron 2, and therefore they said it, it cannot be the case that uh, Solomon was once the ruler of the city. But here comes again the mismatch between the maps in the Bible with these districts. If you read it in that way, they are totally right, yes? It's true that that in the period we are talking about, early Ion Age uh, 2a, it, 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 with that period A door wasn't. When you went there, it was a totally a a Phoenician city. But then comes in again this discussion about political control and pots and people. uh, The fact that the Phoenician actually ruled the city and that the pottery was uh, that of the Eastern Mediterranean, and and uh, that the the cultural Israelite influence uh, of Israel as a kingdom only came later. Doesn't rule out the 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 uh, the possibility that there were close uh, 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 close relations. Uh, there's also uh, the fact that in the Sharon, uh, precisely within the 10th century, there's a significant rise of of occupation. So in a way, the area between Dor and the Judean South had to be peaceful, otherwise you wouldn't do that. Um, so. I, th- I think there is circumstantial evidence to say that this is as such not at all possible and that we cannot use so i i'm i'm not criticizing the excavation in whatever sense but i think this biblical interpretation uh, needs to be put into perspective and that we truly can say that um so that this list of cities and regions it, it does not offer a full description of of these districts uh but um but it cannot be a very late text, because several of these cities were in ruins after the Assyrian destruction. So if, 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 would, would, so my assumption is always that when somebody who made that list in in his or her historical horizon, these, these these areas and cities must have functioned in some way or have had an important memory. And that's definitely not the case with Batchan and Ramoth and Gilead. Uh, after uh, the assyrian destruction so it, the the text must be uh, earlier and then of course comes this this solomonic issue uh, in place and i do not think that the archaeological record falsifies that historical claim that there might that there might have been a, a close relation between dor and jerusalem
1: yeah i would i would add just to that uh, i i think you're you're absolutely right that the places that uh, are of interest on a list like this is a place like a, a door or a remote Gilead. Um, and, and the reason why these are of interest um, is because these are really border areas. I mean, door, yeah, it's within the tribal territory of uh, of Manasseh. Um, it belongs to uh, Manasseh. But even, and Kyle's done work on this, and there's an episode already on the podcast, uh according to the text Solomon gives Hiram 20 cities just to the north of that and so um, what does it mean that that uh, I mean even the person that is there may even be may even be a Phoenician uh, who's marrying into so there's all kinds of things like that remote Gilead you know we have less than uh, you know a couple generations after this with Ahab and jehoshaphat and then the son of um the sons of Ahab fighting over this and it being back and forth between the Arameans and the whole question that Ahab says is, you know, don't you know that this belongs to us? Uh, well, what does it mean that it belongs to us? Who's actually living there? Is it Arameans? Is it Israelites? Is it, uh, we're remote Gileadites? Uh, and this is a question that, um, that we have looked at very closely at Tel Borna, uh, a site that sits again on a border between Philistine Gath and and Judah. And it's interesting that in the text, in 2 Kings 8, the city rebels. Well, who are they rebelling to? Are they rebelling to the Philistines or are they rebelling to the Judahites or are they saying, you know, enough is enough, we don't want either of you, we're, I, we're self-identifying. And so I think that the, the, the situation um, is always complex, particularly when we talk about border areas, but not just border areas in the sense of a contiguous map. But also some of these that are that are not um, maybe there's Israelites in the northern Galilee or in the lower Galilee. But when you're talking about a Beit Shan or in the middle of the Jordan Valley, who's to say there aren't entities that don't identify with the Israelites either that want to say we're holding on to Beit Shan? Uh, we we're we're just like you know we remember the the influence of the Egyptians. We're the Canaanites, like it seems to be in First in Samuel thirty. So all these factors have to be considered. When we make up a list like this, and that's actually, if I go back to my my point about Second Samuel twenty three, even what we call Israelite, you know, in the eleventh and tenth century, David and now Solomon have to say, "Okay, you're Israelite, whatever, but you're under my rule." Under my rule, just because they say they're king doesn't mean that they're actually going to be king. They have to connect that through these marriage alliances, through um, you know, through this type of through this type of control. One question I have um, that when I approach this text um, is, yes, it's geographically rich, but it's also geographically uneven. Like when we when we start with a, let, and maybe I'll just read some of this, Ben-Hur, you know, this is the Charlton Heston uh, uh, movie, you know, of, of uh, inspiration. Then it says in the hill country of Ephraim. So we have a tribal territory there. Hill country of Ephraim doesn't actually always just mean the Ephraimite, uh, allotment. It actually probably is just another term for the central hills. So it probably can include Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim at different times. But okay, let's just say it's a, a tribal territory. But then we get Ben Decker. Um, and it's these four names Makaz, Sha'abim, Beit Shemesh, and Elon Beit Hanan. Uh, three of these names appear in other, uh, uh, in other sources, sort of. Shalabim appears in Judges, also appears in Joshua, in the Danite list, so does Beit Shemesh. Um, and, but with alone Beit Hanan, you can also read it that way. It actually may also appear in the Shishak list, interestingly enough. But Makaz is only mentioned here. We don't know necessarily where it is. There's different views, maybe it's in the Sorek Valley. But each of these four sites seem to be in the vicinity of where the Danite allotment was, um, according to Joshua chapter 19. But then you have to ask the question, well, wait a second, the Danites, according to the book of Judges and according to the book of Joshua, they weren't there anymore. They left and went to the north. So wh- who were these people? Like, what what are they? Are they Israelites? Are they Amorites? Are they Philistines? Um, and so even in a place that seems to be smack dab in the center where a very important israelite city is going to develop gezer there's you know there's a real question as to who these these are but then also the fact that there's four place names and the rest seem to be either a tribal name a regional name or um you know just some type of of one-off is 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 another question as uh, we can get at, at this list and now as a geographer i want as much as we can get um but we don't get a full description of every single uh one of these and the next one in the list um uh well the next two would be in the area of Manassa, which gets to that question of it not being a direct one-to-one between tribal allotment uh, and and uh, the the twelve districts, as you want to, you know, as you don't want to call them, but that's t- traditionally how they're called.
0: I just want to say that I like this conversation because I think it reminds us of uh, a few really important points that, as modern scholars, we need to. We, quite frankly, we need to be humble um, because, yeah, we can do a lot with the archaeology and with the text, but there is a lot of necessary interpretation that needs to go into it. And there's a lot of ambiguity still as well. And when or if you try to make the archaeology and the text come together in, in a meaningful way, you know, many times it, it's, it's a kind of pat process that very quickly ends as, as oh, yes, either the archaeology supports this or it doesn't. And in the academic world, there's a lot of criticism saying, oh, the archaeology doesn't support this. Well, let's rethink it. You know what do we know about how they do um, social relations? How is political power expressed? And you know to, to the point that that um, Kurt you've been highlighting, I think that when we actually step back and try to remove the layers of our own expectations and the layers of our own history and baggage, again, you know, kings look different, social relationships look different, power is structured in a different way, um, the things that we're looking for might not actually be captured in the archaeology, but it doesn't mean that they're not there. And we have to be okay with this tension to say, well, we don't know based on, you know, the archaeology, it looks like this. It could also be interpreted this way. When we look at what the text tells us, we need to be able to think of it in a different way as well. So hopefully, hopefully all that makes some sense. But I think, yeah you know, it's it's really important, I think, to not be too set in our one single way of approaching the text or of the archaeology and recognize that it's it can be flexible, it can be messy at times
2: yes, and that's also with regard to the list itself in the end um it's it's connected to to the regions of Sihon and oak and 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 in that way connecting this specific district to the big story of of conquest and partial conquest and finally that in the fact that David became king um, God fulfilled uh, the promise of the land that narrative flow of Joshua through judges into kings and how the end uh, how the land in the end was lost it's very nice to see that um that, that 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 um uh, that, that this old material which we clearly can relate to older social historical background it it, it has been integrated into this big narrative but it doesn't mean that we can uh, take his kisser and just cut out the piece that was found no it these are these these borders are fluid and as readers as in the archaeology but also in the text we cannot always precisely define how things are but that makes this this uh, research also so much fun. (laughs) Definitely.
1: Definitely. It's a lot of fun. I I would just add to uh, both your points and say, um, I am also struck by how closely this list looks like Judges 1, which is a text that Kyle and I have been looking at uh, in our Geography of Judges series, how there's a lot of the lists that have a comparison to a lot of these towns have, have a comparison as to what you can see here. And I would just add one uh, one final uh, thought um, related to this last verse, where it says there was one official in the land of Judah. The Bible, uh, no shocker here, likes the number 12, right? I mean, it's, it's all over the place, whether it's the 12 tribes, in the New Testament it's the 12 disciples, 12 months, and so on. But often the math of how you arrive at the number 12 and whether it's actually gonna be 11, 12, or 13, is very fuzzy. I mean, I, one of the classic examples of this is in the uh, the book of Revelation where Dan doesn't get included for some reason. And uh, But we also see, um, even in some of the tribal lists, like do, is it Joseph or is it gonna be Ephraim and Manasseh? Because if it's all three, it's, it's 13. Uh, and is it the 12 tribes get an allotment? Um, because Levi is not included that way you can have 12. Tr- so my point is, is that that also has to be factored in because it's the same issue we have in um, in the Joshua 15 list. People always want it to be 12, but in the list there's only 11. Uh, so how do you how do you get to that number 12? Um, and maybe it's not as always um, meant to be literal, a literal number 12. But in this case, it's actually very important because does it mean in this very last verse, that there was one official in the land of Judah who gave taxes also? Or is it? does it mean, as like Anson Rainey uh, suggested, and I think Kurt, you suggested other, that maybe Judah's tax exempt? Uh, and this is part of the reason why uh, they're going to have this confrontation, this brouhaha mm-hmm. at Shechem.
2: I would suggest that, so I would suggest that there is there is a deliberate ambiguity here in the text, because it does not say that and there was one governor who was over the land. But what is the land? And you say it's Judah, but others say it's not. And I think this, precisely this suggestion makes you think and in the end raises in the north the idea, but okay, the king is Judahite and he comes with his youngsters and and wants us to to, to pay taxes even more. We want to get rid of this. So I I think this, this ambiguity, my interpretation would be that it's there on purpose.
1: And, and to to your point read the next verse judah and israel were as there's a division you know it's not just all israel together there's a there's a division
2: and of course we are still in the first part of 1 kings 2 11 so on the surface what what is most evident is how great everything is and you have to delve into below the surface before you see the problems
0: yep. <laughs> Anything, uh, Chris, any last thing you want to add? No.
1: No, I think this was a lot of fun. Kurt, thank you so much. I could nerd up this kind of stuff all day. Uh, It's a lot of fun to to dive into these geographical uh, issues that... Um, again, touch on so many... That's what I love about historical geography. When you dive in and you even touch like on a name like Abel Mahola, it makes you think of Elisha the prophet. It makes you think of the other references. How do we know where this place is? How does it fit in? Um, and so it's just been so fun to have this conversation and we'll have to do it again.
0: Yeah. And Kurt, one last question for you. Now, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you have excavated at Megiddo. So you have some field experience. Are you... And Chris, I'm not sure what question we're going to go with here. Are you a coffee man in the morning when, (laughs) before the sun has risen before any creature should be alive? Are you a coffee man before you head out to the site or a tea man or something else?
2: (laughs) When I get up, no matter how early it is, the first thing I want to have is tea.
0: Oh, okay. Nice. I, what is there a specific kind of tea or any tea will do?
2: Yeah. Any tea. So it was, it was not hot enough at at you know,
0: but but it was okay. But it was, and it's a long time ago, so I, I shouldn't complain. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, Kurt, we're just, again, with a thank you for being here. This has been a lot of fun, and OnScript listeners, hopefully, you guys enjoyed the, this podcast as well. And tune in next time for another great episode. Until then, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show. Please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate.
2: Until next time, keep digging.